Good evening. Let us pray. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our all-provident Father, you spoke to St. Catherine to reveal your will and to set the world on fire with the truth of your gospel, the cross of your Son. Pour out your Holy Spirit upon us. Give us a share in that grace in which St. Catherine came alive, was a bright and shining light on this earth, and found her home with you in heaven. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Saint Dominic, Saint Catherine of Siena. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Sound okay? Everything okay? Okay. Must, couldn't be? Could be better or couldn't? Couldn't be better. Couldn't possibly be better. Okay, great. So I, I stand before you tonight to address you about one of the um, proudest, no, one of the children of St. Dominic, of whom the order is most proud, St. Catherine of Siena. St. Catherine is a child of Dominic in a complicated way, so she's a Dominican saint, but we'll try to spin out some of the special interests that she has as a, as a Dominican saint, because her life is not really like that of any Dominican today, the form of life that she embraced. So, I have a handout for you. It has her dates. Um, anyone good enough at math to tell me the, the age at which she died? She died at 33, right. So she died very young, remarkably young for her accomplishments. So she was alive in the 14th century. Uh, for those of you who've been through some classes about St. Dominic and the origins of the Dominican order, what, what century was that? The 13th century, right, the glorious 1200s. So the, the 13th century, that was the greatest century that we've had yet. And then the 14th century, things got really hairy, and then it just got worse, got worse and worse from there. I think the 19th century was pretty interesting. But anyway, Catherine was there at the time when the Dominican order was not looking so hot. Uh, things were not necessarily so inspiring. But she perceived in St. Dominic and his brethren the light of the truth, and she embraced it. For herself. So, okay, so she's living in the, the 1300s, the 14th century. Some basic facts about St. Catherine. So she is the 24th child of her parents. Her parents had 25 children. So she was the 24th of 25 children, which is basically unimaginable to us today, I think. Um, so she was in a, uh, a family that was overflowing with life, obviously, and they wanted there to be more life. They wanted there to be, you know, men uh, going out and succeeding in the world, making a name for themselves. They wanted to have women who would marry and have greater families, 
because the family in St. Catherine's, Italy, was a source of power and stability. She lived at a time when uh, Italy was not unified. It was a basically a big system of warring city-states who were you know, controlled by families and bishops and kings and popes. So it was, a, it was sort of a spicy time. And so one way that you could assure your safety was strength in numbers in your family. Okay, so, so St. Catherine, at an early age, began to have a kind of remarkable devotion to Jesus. And what did she want to do? Well, this is where it begins to, I think, already become kind of hard for us to understand, hard for me to understand as a, as a modern Dominican, that she was attracted to become a sort of spouse of Jesus. She had visions to this effect, that she wanted to be kind of married to Christ, to God alone, and that she also wanted to commit this virginity not to a, the life of a nun in a, in a contemplative monastery, but to a kind of being a Dominican um, in some other way. So she refuses marriage. So in a way, what she's just saying is not like yes to religious life, which is what we you know, emphasize. It's that you're saying yes to something more just like no to marriage. I am already married in my heart to Jesus. So she had this kind of fanatically strong will and love for God, which she wanted to inform her whole life so that she would be single. And there's, you know, like, there's a vision that Jesus gave her a ring, so she's espoused to him. Okay. She seeks the habit of a Dominican. So she wants to be dressed as a Dominican. And there's a story about, you know, St. Catherine has this vision of um, the a sort of image of St. Dominic in the distance, and he has the habit. He's going to sort of put the habit on her, make her a Dominican. So she's, this is, again, St. Catherine sort of having an imaginative or sensible vision. And she's like pushing through this crowd, and two prostitutes are holding onto her, holding her back, like clawing at her. And she just has to just wail on them, just get them away from her so that she can run to St. Dominic to get the habit. Now, what some people will see in this vision is something of her situation, that a woman who decided to just be single, to be in the world, was not someone who was seen as a sort of secure part of society and could even be seen as someone who was morally compromised, so in the company of these prostitutes. So she's choosing to be unmarried, and by doing that, she's risking an appearance of instability, of maybe even immodesty or unchastity. So Catherine was willing to undergo the kinds of accusations that people would throw at her as being like just sort of a, a wild person. What she eventually does is she becomes a member of this new kind of life, this new form of life called like the, the, women, the women with mantles, the women with veils. Usually they're widows, 
So women whose husbands have died and they want to devote themselves to this new Dominican order in a certain way, living a life of penance and life of the gospel, but, you know, from their homes. This is a young, unmarried woman who wants to do something like that. This is basically what she, what she does. So at some point, she, she receives the sort of care of some Dominican friars. She receives the, the patronage of St. Dominic in a way that we don't necessarily have a clear definition for. So she's, she's a sort of laywoman who takes a habit and becomes a general Christian fireball in society, in her, in her hometown, her own context. So it's hard to imagine uh, someone wearing a habit like us, but without the sort of institutional clarity about what that means. And she starts to, like, gather other people to herself. She just becomes this spiritual advisor, this spiritual guru, almost, to both men and women, both young and old, uh, powerful and simple. And so, okay, so that's another, that's an interesting new phenomenon, and I just want to pause here. So if you look at your handout, I gave you the dates of St. Catherine, 1347 to 1380, and then some interesting comparisons. So this, I think, gives a little bit more clarity to what's going on with St. Catherine. Leading up to her, you start to have these women in European society who become like popular spiritual guides. So you may have heard of Hildegard of Bingen. She was declared a doctor of the church by Pope Benedict XVI not too long ago. So she's in the uh, 11th and 12th century. Mechtild of Hackeborn um, in the 13th century, towards the end of the 13th century, she dies. St. Gertrude the Great, around the same time. And then St. Bridget of Sweden, who's really right up until sharing some of the uh, time with St. Catherine in the, it's the handout in the back there, in the world of European Christianity. And largely these are women who are born of some sort of maybe noble parentage. So they're, they're, uh, they have connections. They go to a, like a good monastery, which is almost like going to a good boarding school. And they have influence. And part of their influence consists in the fact that they are prophets. They're basically prophets, like Christian prophets almost like the prophets of the Old Testament. And a lot of these were women. So you have this medieval phenomenon of the, the women mystic, the women mystics acting as these kind of advisors to everyone in a certain way. The people are devoted to them. They see their acts of charity. They see their courage and their ability to speak and to lead. But not just everyone, but also to, like, kings and emperors and nobles and mercenaries. So I've given you a couple books here that I think are helpful, um, just a short little bibliography. So if you want a more kind of academic presentation of St. Catherine, there's, she's very popular in like any kind of medieval history or early modern history. 
because she's this, you know, power lady. She's very spiritually interesting, kind of an interesting case of, of being uneducated but educated, literate but illiterate, and powerful. So this uh, first book by Thomas Luongo, The Saintly Politics of Catherine of Siena, is good. It's not, it's not irreverent. It's, uh, it's not intended to be uh, a devout work. It has a lot of you know, footnotes and dates and things like that. But it shows a lot of the real context of St. Catherine. So in great detail, these Italian city-states, the families, the dynamics between her family and the other local families, and this family supports the Pope, and this family is against the Pope. And some of the stories are actually really fascinating to, to, to read about. So one story that Thomas Longo focuses on is there's a young man who's basically gotten caught on the wrong side of one of these wars between Italian families, and he's, he's going to be executed. She knows him, and she goes to him. And she sort of advises him, and in a very public way, shepherds him into his death and his execution. She's, I think, with him at the time that he's beheaded, even. So very vivid stuff. And, okay, so that's, you know, if you want this sort of more secular, um, respectful, but more kind of academic and uh, giving you all the little details, all the, all the gossip about St. Catherine, so you can look at Thomas Luongo. Pope Benedict XVI gave a lot of these um, Wednesday addresses. So popes will just give a little speech about something on Wednesday, and, and it'll be collected in a book sometime. So Pope Benedict really put a lot into these and kind of marches through all these great figures of Christianity. So they get collected in these little books, like on the Church Fathers. And there's one called Holy Women. So this, this phenomenon I'm talking about, about you know, the, the women prophets, the European women kind of founders of, of modern spirituality, uh, you'll find that in Holy Women. This is where I kind of encountered this idea that, that, it's, that it's really a tradition, um, almost consciously handed on by this series of women uh, nuns and visionaries and mystics, and then eventually members of the Dominican and Franciscan um, families, as we call them. So Holy Women by Pope Benedict, that's a nice little collection of just very brief little reflections um, that are very beautiful. And then finally, um, there's a book that's out recently by Father Paul Murray. So. Look at that. Very cool cover. Um, this is a statue of St. Catherine that I think is in Rome. Um, modern, and she's, you know, depicted as very, it's a real, like, action shot. Um, so St. Catherine, mystic of fire, preacher of freedom. If you like Thomas Aquinas, this has uh, quite, a, quite a tag on the back of it that St. Catherine is like Aquinas's summa set on fire. So, so Father Paul Murray wants, wants to argue that St. Catherine is continuing the theology of St. Thomas Aquinas in a lot of ways, which I think is true, but it's like taking the thing and setting it on fire. So, okay. So this is a, this is a, a fine new thing, and I want to just sort of base some of the, the things that I'll emphasize on uh, 
Father Paul Murray's own presentation of St. Catherine. Because um, I think that for a lot of Dominicans, uh, Thomas Aquinas already is on fire, and we receive him in a way where, you know, we really get it poured into our minds, and it, 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 it's like a fire in your, in your mind that makes your heart fill with love, and you see what it is that you can see about God, and it's very exciting. Okay, but maybe not for everyone. And St. Catherine had a gift for images, for uh, rhetoric, so manipulating the emotions through images, and for, like, engaging uh, in wild stuff that St. Thomas was, you know, St. Thomas was writing all day long. He was writing, like, 13 pages a day, at least, um, so he couldn't really, you know, go out and tell the Pope what to do. But that's what St. Catherine was doing. St. Catherine was going out to everyone, no matter how important or scary they were, and teaching them about salvation. In a way where she was just like, if you don't do what I'm saying, you are in serious trouble. And people listened to her. Her city, at one point, um, sent her on a mission to, like, stand up for them. So, you know, she's sent out as, like, the first wave of attack in certain cases. Then they'd send, they'd send you know, uh, more... Th- they'd, behind her, they would send some threats because they didn't think that she was going to be able to do it alone, and then she would come back at them and say, like, how dare you do that? I got it under control. So and another example that's very interesting. Uh, so you have these wars among the Italian uh, families and city-states, and um, the English the English came in, and they took advantage of this. There were English mercenaries who would, who would roam around um, killing for hire, St. Catherine uh, confronted one of these guys named John Hawkwood and kind of like, you know, talked him down. So she was able to overcome kind of fascinatingly uh, powerful and bad dudes simply by what she was saying about God. By speaking about God, she was able to influence the course of not only political history, not only the church's history, but like human history. Okay, I was going to say something about the Avignon Papacy, but look that up on your own, the Avignon Papacy, maybe for another time, it's very interesting. So that's St. Catherine helping to persuade the Pope to come back to Rome. So you can maybe thank St. Catherine for the fact that the Pope is in Rome, because he wasn't always. Okay, so one thing that people often like to do is read St. Catherine's book called The Dialogue. St. Catherine's Dialogue is a work that has seen uh, a lot of interesting transformations, and in the 60s, uh, a woman named Giuliana Cavallini discovered that she was like reading through the dialogue, and she noticed um, it didn't really make sense the way it was organized. And she started to think, like, I think I see certain themes that that should really I don't know, she had a hunch, and so she started to do research and reorganize things, and basically she found a truer organization for this work. So this translation uh, in the Classics of Western Spirituality by Susan, Susan, Suzanne, Suzanne Nofke is of the Giuliana Cavallini version of 1968, and this is the real deal. The ones that came before it 
have, they have St. Catherine, but it's kind of mixed up. It seems clear now that that was the work of, you know, well-meaning Dominican friars who wanted to try to organize it into, like, a, a philosophical treatise, whereas it seems that Cavallini discovered a more original organization. So this is the dialogue, and it's a lot of sort of Catherine speaking with God. God the Father telling Catherine about himself and his son and his church and how to get the Dominicans to stop being lazy. But another thing that people like to read is Catherine's letters. So a lot of, a lot of studies now are based on uh, Catherine's letters. She writes, she has written prayers, which are also very interesting, but it's these letters which give a really vivid sense of Catherine's movements in the world, her, her activity. And in her letters, uh, you see a lot of these images that she you know, uses to, to sort of push people towards God. So what Father Paul Murray wants to emphasize is that Catherine has a special focus on freedom. And I've just given a selection of quotes from her letters taken from Father Paul Murray's book that try to spell out what it is St. Catherine means by freedom and its relationship to everything else as far as we can get. Okay. So on your handout, the first text is a letter to a young man. She says, This gentle God has given us the strength of our will, which is the soul's fortress. And neither the devil nor anyone else can take it away from us. Certainly, then, we can be secure and fearless. So the true meaning of the human will is not just this thing that you can do whatever you want with. The will has a nature. It has an inclination towards God. But God made it, unlike anything else in the world, God made it free. So only a will is free. And only a few things in nature, in the world, have a will. And some of those are invisible, they're angels. And the rest of them are human beings. So this great gift of God, of the, the will, is what Catherine thinks is like the fortress of the soul. So she's saying that neither the devil nor anyone else can harm us with respect to our will. Our will is a stronghold, a sort of furnace of freedom, and we can be secure and fearless because of this gift of the will. Now, um, are our wills really free? In this life, our wills are always going to be affected by sin. And so for someone to say this alone, you know, like that you're, you're free and you can be you can become godly, it may ring a little false because we're all enslaved by sin. We're all, as St. Paul says, living according to the law of sin in our members, in our body. So our, our sensual life, that'll come up in a little bit. So how do we become free in our will? The next text says, Christ frees us from weakness and strengthens the heart of the troubled, who, with genuine humility and confidence, 
ask for his help. So, in humility, this is St. Catherine being like a lot like St. Augustine. So she's very Augustinian in a certain sense. Through humility, Christ frees us and then he strengthens us. And she says, strengthens the heart. So the heart is the place where the will resides. Heart, in the, um, in the ancient sense, means something that can think. So we tend to think like of our, our mind is the thing that thinks, our heart is the thing that feels. This is not really the, the way that people have usually thought about it in human history. Normally, the heart and the mind are kind of like linked together. And the thinking of the heart and the thinking of the mind are connected. What would the difference be? Well, okay, go on to the next text here. We must then very conscientiously free our heart and affection. So, okay, stop there for a moment. Heart is where the will is. And then there's this other thing called affection. So affection is more like our emotions. There's a connection. There's an obvious connection between the heart and all the emotions, but they're different. The heart can't be touched by anybody. It is that fortress of the will. The heart desires things. It wants them. But it can't be determined the way that the emotions can be like played upon, the emotions can be manipulated. St. Catherine is perfectly willing to use blood and fire and lightning bolts to manipulate your emotions, but she can't get at your heart. Only Christ can get at your heart. So you lay it down before him in humility. Okay, so we have to free our hearts. She says we must then very conscientiously free our heart and affection from this tyrant, the world, and set it on God, completely free and sincere, letting nothing come between ourselves and him. So this is Catherine, the spouse of God. Let nothing come between yourself and God. We must not be two-faced or love falsely, since he is our dear God and he keeps his eyes on us, seeing our hidden and inmost heart. So it's a sort of promise of intimacy. It's also like a little bit of a threat. God sees our inmost heart. So the devil can't get there, but God can. He can free the heart, and then a heart that strays from him, he can see it from within. Okay, so there's something about freedom there and about God and laying yourself before him. What does this have to do with love, with God as love? Okay, next text. St. Catherine says, and this is to the Pope. This is the Pope who, this Pope was known for um, promoting uh, the Franciscans in an important moment. So he helped the Franciscans a lot, I think. And he's also the Pope who Catherine worked most powerfully through. He's the Pope who, when the Popes had fled from Rome to Avignon, France. This is the Pope who decided to come back. And he was a good guy, but he was also like a little bit of a troubled, you know, good guy. So he needed, they say that he had already made up his mind to go to Avignon. 
Okay, so St. Catherine didn't just like boot him and move him there by force. But they also say that he's the kind of guy who needed like some kind of sign. And St. Catherine was that sign to this idea of the, the medieval women prophet. So she was the prophet who confirmed this pope in his, his action to bring the church back to Rome. And here's, here's how she, spe- she speaks to him. She's talking to the pope. I long with boundless love for God and his inf- infinite mercy to free you from all half-heartedness and sentimentality and make you a new man. She's telling the Pope that he needs to become a new man, that he needs to be freed from all half-heartedness and sentimentality. So she's coming at the Pope with love. She's assailing him with love, trying to basically destroy his sin and be an instrument of God in the church, in the life of the Pope, and in the soul of this man. Make him a new man, like he needs to be saved. That's her main concern. St. Catherine's probably favorite image for God is blood. So she loves to talk about blood. Um, I think that there's, there's an appropriate connection between blood and Catherine. If you think about when, like, if you ever see blood, it's alarming. It's like blood shouldn't be out. It should be in. So St. Catherine was someone who was like, you know, like I said, a woman going out into places where it was not necessarily considered modest to be. So it's like, whoa. Uh, so it has that effect of, of blood. So there's surprising and quick and... Uh, Okay, surprising and quick. Yeah, there you go. So blood for her really puts forth the power of God's love. And so here she says to a young man, in Christ's blood we are made strong, even though weakness persists in our sensuality. So this is a good occasion also to point out that Catherine was not afraid to talk about sensuality, to talk about family matters, um, and to really be kind of like explicit with people about what she expected of them. Um, she would call them, you know, she'd say, my father and my son to her spiritual director. It's just sort of, you know, there's all these relationships that arise in the life of the gospel that are unexpected. And so she was not embarrassed about uh, nature and the power of femininity over masculinity, or the power of masculinity over femininity. So I think that's also why she's kind of a popular writer today, because she's like saying a lot of stuff that you can really chew on if you're thinking about um, the relationship of men and women. But notice what she's doing here with sensuality. She's calling it weak. So sensuality is just mere sensibility, the life of the senses, and it's weak. So we think about about sensuality as something that's just powerful, that really controls us. You know, like an aroma makes you, you know, forced to go pursue the food that the aroma is coming from. She thinks that's weak. What's strong is God, and God works on the heart. Sensuality, our senses, is a weak force. So 
Actually, let's skip down to the, the bottom uh, text here. If you want to be relieved of your burdens and infirmities, keep your eyes on the slain, consumed lamb, so that the fire of his charity may warm your heart and soul to love for patience and consume all the cold and damp of selfish, sensual love and passion and self-pity. So, yeah, what is hot? The fire of charity, the fire of love. This is the love that is emanating from the lamb who was slain. So all of the heat of the universe comes from this slain lamb who is being consumed by who? By us. We eat him in the Eucharist. So the heat of this world, the fire of this world, comes into our bodies through the sacraments, through the Eucharist. And then what is she contrasting this with? May it consume, may it eliminate all the cold and damp of selfish, sensual love and passion and self-pity. So I love that. So once again, uh, you would think, okay, uh, she's a passionate Italian woman, which means she likes, um, you know, fine fabrics and good foods. She's like, no, that's not that interesting. That's sensual love and passion, and it's cold and clammy. It's damp and boring. Whereas God is a consuming fire. He comes to us invisibly, and we see this kind of manifested in the image of a slain lamb. Okay, so back up to this uh, second to last text. Stay near your gentle mother, Charity, who will free you from all servile fear and all coldness of heart. So Charity will free you from all coldness of heart and give you strength and breadth and freedom of heart. Okay, so once again, St. Catherine is concerned with strength, with doing stuff. She founded a nun's monastery at one point in her life, but she didn't stay there. She wanted to have strength and, what, breadth. She wanted to be broad, meaning like St. Catherine's empire, like having a, an imperial reach. Okay, and then finally, this idea of freedom of heart. I was puzzled by this idea of a free heart. I remember seeing a little magazine in the novitiate, uh, this woman saying, like, God has freed my heart. It's like, I don't know what that means. What, what is that? I don't, is that a feeling? Is that supposed to express some kind of special excitement over something? I think it's actually a very difficult concept, and I think that's a lot of what St. Catherine is trying to bring us to understand, is that through the purifying of our love, by the power of God, this one perfect thing in us, which is our, our soul, our heart, our mind, our ability to love God and know him, can be freed. It can be freed from all fear. And so that's what Paul Murray's emphasis is, that St. Catherine is always approaching these people who are in ordinary, terrifying circumstances like that anyone today could be in, you know, manipulation, coercion, um, abuse, and they're afraid. And the only solution to fear is to understand that God 
working through our heart can free us from attachment to the passions of this world, slavery to the devil. And St. Catherine is focused on using whatever she can to make that available. My favorite image from St. Catherine is um, she talks about the, the wound on the side of Christ. And she says just sort of simply in very kind of street terms, it's a store. I think, I don't know Italian, but I think the word is basically a bodega. So it's like a 7-Eleven. You can go in there and you can get whatever you need to do what you have to do. The side of Christ is an open store and it has, it has lovely things, it has strong things, it has all the things that will save your soul. Okay, um, so to close, uh, yeah, so this translator, Suzanne Nofke, has just like a, a little passage that I liked, and it's about, uh, you know, so I've been talking a lot about St. Catherine's exterior action, and some people might say like, well, she's a mystic, talk about her prayer and her interior life. Okay, I'm sorry, I didn't do that, I got excited, I get excited about the political stuff. But here's a little something that I think is very cool. Um, people talk about, um, the different things that prayer does for them. And uh, I think this is phrased in a way that's a little bit like, she's trying to make a point. Suzanne Nafke, a Dominican sister, is trying to make a point. And uh, it's, it's, uh, it's extreme, and I like it. Um, but, you know, so take it for what it's worth. But she says, Catherine did not pray simply to refuel herself. She has that in quotation marks. She wasn't simply trying to refuel herself for further activity. Nor was prayer an oasis of rest from work, a kind of holy self-indulgence. Okay, so just, it's, you know, prayer does recharge our batteries, refuels us. Prayer is a rest from life. But Suzanne Nofke is trying to make a point that she did not pray simply to refuel herself, nor simply for rest. It was precisely what she experienced in contemplation that impelled her into action. And all that she touched or was touched by in her activity was present in her prayer. Indeed, in her later years, she was seldom physically alone when she prayed, except in her room at night. And her contemplation, on the other hand, her seeing God in prayer, was so present to her active life that she prayed and even burst into ecstasy with the text of many of her letters. So, again, this idea that uh, St. Catherine is the Summa of Thomas Aquinas set on fire. So the point of the Summa is to help us be saved by seeing God. And what Suzanne Nofke is saying is that prayer, Catherine's prayer, and I think also your prayer, can be something which, you know, not only uh, restores you to a sort of healthy state, not only gives you rest from the sufferings of this life, but which actually um, transforms your soul so that you become something new. And the power of God will flow through you, through this, this idea that the contemplation, the vision of God, no one can see God and go away uncrisped a little bit, unburnt up. So that the contemplation of God in prayer transforms us and makes us capable of little things for him,
but also of great things. Okay, so thank you very much. And we can have some, does anyone, has anyone been thinking of a question? Yes. Uh, do you want to get the microphone, Father Hyacinth, for um, whatever Zoomers there still may be out Okay, one moment. I'll repeat your question. Your question. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Would you uh, make a comment of her role of being a preacher and the contemplation life? Uh, how she uh, attained to be a preacher, being at the same time, she was not a woman, I understand that she created monastery, but she was not living there, so she did contemplation for other things. Would you expand about the preacher's role? And, and the third thing is, she died at 33 years old. 33. Hmm. She was here. She was. Okay. So, okay, so the last question is, she died at 33, um, and how did that happen? Um, I've never heard, uh, I mean, um, have any of you brothers heard, like, any kind of specific reason besides just her extreme life, or the sort of, I mean, there's a sort of tradition that Christ died at the age of 33. So I think that in a way, yeah, well, and I think it's like she basically, uh, I think at one point, you know, she just sort of couldn't feel her legs anymore, and she went into bed, and then, I mean, she was known for, like, not really eating very much, and really just being at the extreme of human capacity. So... St. Dominic was kind of similar. He, uh, he died when he was about 50, um, you know, and it seemed like it's just because they did not spare their bodies. Um, and, you know, there could be further reasons why God wanted to. There's a, I mean, there's an idea that um, the saints are kind of like a meteor. Uh, so, you know, going through the heavens, penetrating the atmosphere, uh, and just lighting up for a little while, and that's kind of what's so great about them. I, I've, I've heard that about different saints, and so, yeah, but... So she had this stroke, but then I think she lived like a couple more months, and then, yeah. Okay, so the second question was the, her background as a Dominican, and uh, and how to understand her in terms of co contemplation and preaching, because that's kind of the character of the order of preachers. Okay. So, yeah, St. Catherine um, is entering into the Dominican world, uh, especially through you know, Dominican friars that she meets, 
Um, and then other women who are kind of associated with the Dominicans. So there's this, um, they're kind of like, you know, people use the words, the phrase spiritual direction, but it wasn't, I don't think, as something that you necessarily would have heard that phrase. Her confessors is more like it. So she would have Dominican confessors, advisors, and she had kind of a series of them. And she came to such a prominent role in society that basically the head of the Dominicans became her um, her, her confessor. So Raymond of Capua, who was the um, master general of the Dominicans, was for a long time her... her he, I think my sense, as I recall, is that he was basically sent to like check out what's going on here and see if it's legitimate or if it's something weird. And Raymond um, was also associated with a movement to reform the Dominicans. So in the, you know, the early days of the Dominicans, it was a very kind of apostolic group. Um, and then a lot of people joined. It became very popular. It became very successful. They received lots of gifts. They became wealthy. Their numbers increased to the point where they're basically like these little colonies of, you know, men learning uh, theology and philosophy and, and, and then, you know, taking care of the business of the house. So there's a sort of inclination when this happens to like a little bit of laxity um, and so they weren't necessarily all that inspiring. So St. Catherine is seeing this. She's seeing the fact that they're uh, Dominicans who aren't exactly obedient to the rule of St. Dominic and then Raymond and other friars are also seeing this and they're starting a sort of movement to, to reform that. So they'll call this the observant movement. Um, it was especially active in Florence and um, it's a cool thing about the Dominicans that we don't, we don't break up. We never really split. Um, if we split, we, this is how we do it. We, we say, okay, everybody, you know, fine, keep doing your thing. We're going to start a little house over here that's going to observe the rule more strictly, an observant house. And then, you know, they start to get more vocations, interesting things happen. Fra Angelico, who we'll hear about sometime, was an, a member of the observant movement. Uh, so, so then, and then they start to sort of revive or kind of re-inspire um, the Dominican charism. So, so that's a cool thing about St. Catherine. She's, you know, living uh, by herself with her family and her city, but she's actually having this influence on the order through Raymond and just in general as a, as a, it's like you see St. Catherine, you see that God is doing something through her. I'm sure people had very different ideas about her. But then this question about her education, her ability to, um, you know, yeah, what does contemplation mean for her? And then, and then preaching is, a, is a, a special question of its own. Yeah, um, it seems like, I mean, what Suzanne Nofke says is like somehow, quietly, she must have learned to read. Um, I think there are kind of more, you know, pious traditions about her learning, learning from Christ himself, if I recall. Um, so we don't know. She doesn't, she wasn't from a, you know, a, a monastic community or something where she would have had some opportunity to read, but even, even then, I'm not sure if she would have been able to, if she was in a women's convent. I'm not sure about their 
kind of educational curricula. But, yeah, um, it seems like she basically soaked it in through talking to Dominicans because, you know, we tend to talk about theology. I don't know. Um, and so, yeah, her contemplation is informed by this. And so the, the Dominican idea of love is that we naturally love God, but when you love someone, you want to know more about them. And so you, you study them. Uh, you know, if you, if you love uh, a woman, you want to learn all about her. And then the more you know about her, the more you can love her. If you were to, you know, love a fantasy woman, then you wouldn't really be loving her. So you need to learn about her. And then what that does is it doesn't make things abstract and dry. It makes them more real. And it makes the fire go larger. So... That's the Dominican idea of love, is that knowledge increases love. We don't do this thing where you say, uh, you know, like, the love, my love has no reasons, and it's, and, uh, and, and it's not an intellectual thing. It's a thing of the heart. It's like, for us, it's like the heart and the mind are almost like two sides of the same thing. So to know God, which is why God sent Jesus, is to know God so that we might know God, makes us love God. So contemplation, then, is all about, by whatever means God provides, whether it be listening to the scriptures at church or simply praying or studying St. Thomas Aquinas or St. Augustine or Pseudo-Dionysius or St. Ephraim, uh, we become more powerful lovers of God. And then... um, So that's contemplation in the broad sense. And what St. Thomas thought is that the apostles were so contemplative. uh, So these are the 12 apostles, these fishermen who then met God and became sort of like filled with the Holy Spirit. They were so contemplative, that vision of God so much filled their body and their soul that it poured out, and that is called preaching. So... In the ideas of St. Thomas Aquinas, preaching is just handing on the things that you contemplate, uh, the truths that God reveals to you in public and open ways, in the liturgy and in the scriptures, but also in private ways and in very intimate ways. So, uh, Father Dominic has a question, but Juan Manuel has three questions, so uh, we're only on the question two. So I'll get to you next. Um, but so, uh, so I think that you could say that in a broad sense, Catherine's whole ministry of writing and speaking and like cajoling people, you know, manipulating people, was a kind of, you know, in a broad sense, preaching. Not in the sense of the apostles, because an apostle needs to be sent. That's what apostle means. It means one who is sent. St. Paul says, uh, how can they preach unless they are sent? And the church has always taken that to mean that, like, there's a, the apostles kind of own preaching, and they can give it out to their priests, but they can't give it out to everyone. But then in a more general sense, preaching is this overabundance of divine knowledge and love which spills into the world, and that's the gospel. Okay, your first question was, It was something interesting. I, 
Uh-huh. No, right. Yeah, I don't I don't know what she if she attended any school besides just whatever her her family taught her, yeah. There's also a good book by a, a friend of mine and uh, a sister uh, who's uh, has was a nursing instructor at Catholic University for many decades, and she's retired now. Sister Mary Elizabeth O'Brien, but she wrote a book about Saint Catherine and nursing. Saint Catherine as a nurse. So Saint Catherine served in a lot of ways. So we talked about Saint Martin de Porres last time, like medical uh, help in in you know the medieval world. Sometimes like just someone in our community who is through experience has learned how to deal with emergencies. So she clearly had a certain nursing vocation too. Um, Father Dominic Bump, did you have a question? So um, I think that whether she would have read it is, I don't think she would have read it because my sense is that in the 14th century, the way that you would get your hands on the Summa Theologiae is probably that um, I think they basically had like textbook rentals. Um, Books were, they were books and they were, you know, there's a whole industry of producing books, but they were basically like these massive expensive things made out of a bunch of animal hides so you couldn't really just like buy books um so a library would be something that was more like you know you could borrow from it but you uh you wouldn't have your own and then students would like rent them and they would take notes and but then they'd have to return them and so it's it's an interesting books how they worked in this time was you know the 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 printing press had not had not made everyone able to read and uh, criticize St. Thomas as, as they could a couple, a couple centuries later. Um, but as for like, yeah, so did St. Catherine like absorb Thomas's theology and was it inconsistent with his theology? Um, so St. Catherine has a big emphasis on humility and uh, I really like what St. Thomas says about humility in the Summa. He says, um, is the question, he, he would write in terms of questions So the question is, is humility the greatest of all the virtues? So there's a sort of strong spiritual tradition that like pride is the greatest evil. And so what defeats pride? Humility. So humility is the greatest virtue. So St. Thomas is like, is humility the greatest virtue? Well, um, well, God is the greatest and God is charity. So that would be the, probably the greatest virtue. And then there's also the, um, the way the human soul is kind of ordered. There's the intellect is the highest thing. So then, so then the intellectual virtues would be higher. And then, and then there's justice, uh, which is the uh, virtue of all towards each and each to all and each to the, each other. And the general justice encapsulates all of that. So that's obviously greater than any individual person's you know, humility. 
but like after that, yeah, humility is the greatest. So, you know, he, he very gently kind of massages that so that it's, it's an important part of the tradition. And yeah, I think Thomas very much believes in humility. Um, so what else then? Well, St. Catherine talks a lot about um, charity, as I tried to sort of point out a little bit. So charity is the greatest, and God is charity, uh, in the sense that our having God is called charity, insofar as we're able to have him dwelling in us. And then after that, well, St. Catherine talks a lot about this. She uses this word, if you read the dialogues, you'll see a lot about discretion. And discretion is a sort of more ancient word. Uh, it's used in like John Cashin, uh, the early kind of monks, and it, it enters into the Dominican tradition, certainly through Cashin. Um, and discretion is basically prudence. So I think that when St. Catherine is talking about discretion and praising discretion, I think it's basically the same thing as prudence. Um, so for St. Thomas, uh, the greatest virtue simply is charity, love. But then the greatest of the moral virtues, the human virtues, uh, is prudence. So if that's right, I think that St. Catherine is, you know, she's taking in Thomas and she's realizing that there's, you know, there's love, there's prudence, and these things kind of cover everything in the modes of nature and of grace. That would be, that would be a way that she's, she's Thomistic, even though she's um, set on fire. Okay, other questions? Father Hyacinth? <laughs> yeah, all I remember is that her, this is a very difficult thing for some people, that her head is in uh, Siena, right? Only the head, I think. <laughs> but go ahead. Has anybody been to Siena? Okay, a few. So in Siena, you have the Church of St. Dominic, and that's where you, you have her head, uh, which you can see, uh, thankfully, at a distance. Um, but there's also, you can walk through the house she grew, grew up in, which is kind of neat. And of course, Siena is this amazing Italian city, walled city. Um, so there's a lot there in Siena, but she, her body is actually buried in our Dominican church in Rome, Santa Maria Sopra Minerva. Um, and it, so it's, in, it's under the main altar. Um, and I remember when I visited last in 2018, uh, we, have, we have some Dominicans there. They're mostly Italian Dominicans, but we have one of our province, Father Cashin Derbis. And so he was giving me a little tour of, 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 the, of the church there. And he, he allowed me to kind of go, he opened up the back of the altar. So I was able to sort of go in and crawl in and, and pray at our tomb and Meanwhile, you had all these tourists on this, you know, coming up, looking at the church and seeing this Dominican inside the tomb kind of <laughs> praying. But it's, it was kind of striking and, and really nice to have that. But then if you, this isn't just open so that anybody can walk into it, but 
if you, ask, if you find somebody that works there, either Dominican or the sacristan, they'll lead you into a back room in which you can actually visit St. Catherine's cell. So it wasn't originally there, but they actually took the walls at how, and, and from a room she prayed at, in just a few blocks away, and they transported it to this location. And they opened up certain, um, like a little hole in the wall so you can, have, you can touch the original bricks. But they actually had, they, they took off the murals, the paintings as well, that were in that cell, and they, they put them on the walls. So they actually, some of the, this actual cell walls with these beautiful sacred paintings or murals are there. So it's really neat. You can actually visit St. Catherine's cell and pray there, not in its original location, but a few blocks away. It just moved. So I think that's neat. If you ever get to go to Italy, Siena's a, a, a beautiful place to, to visit. There, there's a Eucharistic miracle in another church there, but of course you would want to visit St. Catherine's um, her her home, and then in Rome, her tomb and cell as well. Okay, the question is why decapitate St. Catherine's body? Answer is Rome took her body and her hometown came and um, claimed the, uh, the capital part of her body. Okay, yeah. Thank you, Father Hyacinth. Um, okay, any last questions, remarks, objections? <clears throat> um, thank you for enduring the heat here. So the heat related So if you're not aware, we have night prayer every night in the upper church at nine o'clock. You're most welcome to to stay for that, um, except for Thursday, in which it's a little earlier and associated with the holy hour downstairs. Uh, next week, uh, Father Dominic present on Blessed Fra Angelico. Now we'll finish our series can't cover all the Dominican saints. That would take a long time. So we're just having each of us, you know, present. Um, and then just to kind of to mark your calendars, uh, in a few weeks, on August 3rd, we're going to have a screening of a movie here in the hall. It's going to be, it's called Pray. It's a new movie. It's all about Father Peyton, who promoted prayer in the 20th century. I've, I have not seen it, but I've heard it's very powerful. And he's the, he's the person that coined the phrase, the family that prays together stays together. So anyways, that's just to give you a little heads up about some things ahead. I'll let you end in prayer and a blessing. Okay. <clears throat> yeah, okay, we'll end in a blessing. And um, maybe you will get a special uh, grace from St. Dominic like St. Catherine did. The Lord be with you. May our Father in heaven illumine you with the light of his gospel. May his Holy Spirit descend upon you with irresistible power that by the blood of his Son you may be transformed, freed from your sins, freed from all fear for this life, and freed for union with God, who is your happiness. 
through the intercession of St. Dominic, St. Thomas Aquinas, and St. Catherine of Siena, may Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.